You're listening to the sermon series on the letter to the Philippians at Sojourn Church Midtown. In this letter, the Apostle Paul calls believers to live on the earth now as citizens of heaven. This means that Christians should find their identity not in this world, but in the world to come centered on Jesus Christ. Praise God for the word he has given to us this morning. I'm so thankful to be bringing God's word. And really when we look at our passage today, what we're seeing is the outworking of Paul's argument through the book of Philippians. That what Paul is doing is he is seeking to apply Philippians 1 or chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. It's the outworking. He is giving a, a personal application to the church at Philippi. And last week, what we learned, if you'll remember, is that citizens of heaven are called to live in unity with one another through humility as we look, as we set our gaze to Jesus as our model and our means. And we can tie both of these passages back to our sermon three weeks ago and this one verse, chapter one, verse 27, when we're called to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And friends, I could say that about all of life, right? We could boil it all down to chapter 1, uh, verse 27, that we are called to live a life worthy of Jesus. And that's what we're going to do today is we're going to unpack this passage. What does it look like to live as citizens of heaven in this world? What does it practically look like? And our text today is really calling us to do one thing, one big impossible task. The scripture is calling us to shine like stars in a world full of sin. So before I get ahead of myself, let's, let's come to God in prayer and ask us to work through God's word in our lives today. Let's pray. God, as we open our Bibles, as we set our eyes on this text, as we think about what it means to shine like stars in this world, Father, we confess that often our light flickers. Often we are ashamed and we, we seek to hide it under a basket or a bushel. And I pray right now in this moment, that you will open our eyes to the truth of the scriptures. Father, I pray that we can have the courage to listen and to obey. I pray that we will have the courage to, to set our gaze on you and to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling and to be shaped into your image, to grow as a Christian, Father. I pray if there's someone here who is living in sin, who is watching this video, Lord, that you will convict them of a specific sin in their life and you will lead them to repentance. I pray that um, if there is a non-believer here, that their eyes will be open to salvation, Lord. And I pray that you will work in a powerful way in this moment. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So as we open and we look at, at, at verse 12, what we're seeing is that we as Christians are called to live out salvation we've been given. God has given us graciously this salvation. And what Paul does, he starts in, in verse 12 and he reminds the Philippians that their faithfulness to Jesus has never been based and is not based at this moment on Paul's presence with them. It's not like they obey when Paul's there and then they kind of do their own thing when Paul is not there. You see, Paul had planted the church in Philippi. Paul was their apostle. He was their spiritual father. And it was through him that they had come to faith. And he was the one who was delivering to him the word of God. Literally, he is writing them a letter that becomes the word of God that we are reading today. And it would be easy for the Philippians to look at Paul as this 
uh, otherworldly leader and to obey when he is present, but not when he is absent. But he is urging them that their dependence is not based on his presence, but it's based on the presence of God with them. That whether he is there or whether he is locked in jail, which he is writing this letter, their call is to follow Jesus and to live a life worthy of the gospel. And you know, the same is true for us. We're not in jail in some dingy prison uh, longing for food or water, but this is what I would say. We are living in this unique season in our world where for months and months, we have been trapped in our homes. And now most of us are not trapped in our homes anymore. But the way we are in prison is we're not able to be with one another in fellowship. We're not able to experience the, the love and, and the family of God that he has given to us. And it would be easy to maybe move away from our life with Jesus. Or maybe those spiritual mentors, your community group leader, or your elders who you journey life with, you're not with them. And you, it's easy to move away from the Christian life. Or maybe you feel like life is crashing in on you in the midst of COVID. But let me tell you, that does not give you an excuse to sin. Whether the church is present with you, whether your spiritual mentors are present with you, we are still called to live out our faith and obedience to Jesus. And Paul makes it clear to the Philippians that they are to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. You know, it's really interesting there have, has been a lot written on this one phrase, kind of really figuring out, is this, is this really articulating a works-based salvation? Is Paul saying you need to work hard and, and earn this salvation? Or is Paul somehow saying that you were given salvation as a gift, but now you have to maintain it somehow, like you could lose the gift you were given? And there are a lot of Christians out there, not a lot, but there are some Christians out there who would advocate for this, this works-based righteousness. But I don't think that's what Paul is talking about at all here. And when we, when we look in the Bible and when we read the New Testament in its entirety, really what the scriptures are giving to us is this idea of salvation presented in three different ways. Okay, so stay with me. This is, this is interesting. The first is kind of a picture of salvation in the past for us as believers, which is justification. And then it's salvation for us as believers in the present, which is sanctification. And then in the future, which we're longing for desperately, which is glorification. I love how Paul Lawson summarizes these ideas. He says, in justification, believers are saved immediately from the penalty of sin. In sanctification, they are saved progressively from the power and practice of sin. And in glorification, when we're with Jesus, they are saved ultimately from the presence of sin. Now, I know these are big theological words, but I think they're really important to understand the meaning as we move through this text. You see, justification is what happens when we place our faith in Jesus' work on the cross and we are uh, made right standing with God. We are literally given Jesus' righteousness so we can stand before God the Father in the righteousness of Jesus. That is our justification before God. But sanctification is different. Sanctification is what happens after we come to faith, after we have been justified. Sanctification is really just a fancy word for Christian growth. So when we walk through this passage, this is really one of the core passages in the New Testament that is unpacking what sanctification is, what, what spiritual and Christian growth is. So what Paul is talking about here is the process of sanctification. 
really growing to be like him, not justification, which is our standing before God. We need to remember that when Paul writes to the book of Philippians, he's not writing to unbelievers. He is writing to people who have been saved by grace, saved through the merits of Jesus, a a salvation given to them. He is not calling them to work for their salvation, but to work out their salvation. There's a distinction to demonstrate and to grow what God has worked into them. We are working out our salvation with trembling, what God the Father has given and worked into us. Think about it this way. Um, Probably a lot of you love sports. I know it's really sad during COVID. You've not gotten to watch. You didn't get to watch March Madness. Uh, We're a little uh, nervous about college football, right? But when you think about an athlete, an athlete is given the gift of, of life, of a body, given the ability to engage in sport, but to be strong, to be fast, to be a superior athlete, he has to develop the skill that it takes to win. And in the same way as Christians, we're given salvation, but what we're given is the responsibility to grow in our faith. We're given the gift of life, and then we grow and we mature as a believer. There's, a, there's responsibility placed on our part. Let me give you another illustration, the illustration of a farmer. God is the one who brings about growth in a crop. He's the one who brings about harvest in a crop. But it's the farmer who is called to, to plant the seed. He's called to, to cultivate the land. As, as a farmer, as she tills the land, as she waters, as she weeds, the crop will grow and flourish. And in the same way, as we as Christians, when we look at the Christian life, we are called to cultivate the faith we have been given. So when you hear the word sanctification, just imagine an athlete who trains or a farmer who cultivates the land. All of the, the life that the athlete has and, and the, the harvest that the farmer has, they're both gifts from God, but there is a responsibility on the behalf of the athlete and the farmer. And, and we look to Paul's text here, God has given us a variety of tools to cultivate that godliness. Think about all the things he has given to us. God's word, prayer, fellowship, the ability to confess with one another, so many other things. But what Paul is talking about here is not tools for sanctification. What he is talking about is the desire and the means for spiritual growth, which are so important, right? So important to have that desire and ability to become like Jesus. You see, sanctification or growing to be like Jesus is not simply self-effort. If it was so, then those of you who were disciplined would have an advantage over a person like me. There's more to it than just effort and discipline. There's more to it than daily devotions or working hard. These things all play an important part of growing to be like Jesus. But the fuel for a godly life is found in Jesus himself. It's found in what Jesus has done for us. He is the one who gives both the desire to grow. He warms and he he kindles our hearts so that we long to be like him. We long to be with him. And he gives us the power to actually obey him. The verb used here when it talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling, that that verb used for work, it does not mean that God is working spiritual growth for us as if we play no part. What What it means is that God is supplying all that we need so that we can grow in our faith. As I'm looking at this passage, I'm reminded of what Peter said in 2 Peter 1 verse 3. He looked that with me. 
By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. Peter is is articulating what Paul is saying here through the Spirit. By God's divine power, he has given us everything we need to grow in godliness. Isn't it amazing? God not only gives us salvation as a gift, but he gives us the desire and the power to grow to be like him. Now, there is effort involved. Yes, there is work involved. There is sacrifice that we are called to give as a believer. But even these things are gifts from God. Now, as we we look at this idea of what does it mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, to grow in, to cultivate, it's an important idea. But I don't want us to get hung up here. It's easy to get hung up on this one phrase because the main point of the passage is not that, it's this. We are called to live out the gospel in a dark and sinful world. You see, as we grow to be like Jesus, we literally shine like lights in the world. We are declaring who he is and what he has done in our lives. You know, like a lot of people, I have a bucket list. Uh, It's kind of long. I'm a very ambitious person. Um, And one of the things on my my bucket list um, that's a bit more unrealistic is I want to go sailing in a sailboat across the ocean. Now, I'm not talking about a little sailboat and just like sit in it for a couple hours. I want to get in a sailboat, learn how to sail, and just like cross an ocean, right? Now, mind you, I don't know how to sail. I've been in a sailboat one time and I didn't learn anything. But the idea of setting a course and going on this grand adventure is very appealing, did you know for hundreds of years, that was the common way people traveled is they, they got in a ship and they crossed an ocean. Long before GPS, the way that sailors navigated their course was by the stars. Look at this picture. Look at the beauty of, can you imagine standing on the bow of that boat, looking up into the stars, not just for their beauty, but actually to know where you're going. You're standing on the ship and you're, you're sailing into the dark expanse and you Set your gaze to heaven and you put your trust in the bright stars in the skies because as you follow them, you will get to your destination. You will get to a place of safety. It sounds like another world, right? But that's the world that you and I are called to live in. Now, we're not, we're not called to be sailors, although that would be amazing, right? It's not the sailing part, but it's the part about the stars. You and I are called to shine like stars in the sky. As we shine bright in a dark world, we will guide others to find rest and salvation in Jesus. That's one of the beautiful things about sanctification, spiritual growth. It is to our benefit. We grow to be more like our Savior, but as we grow to be more like our Savior, those around us, your family, your friends, your neighbors, they see Jesus shining through you. Look back at verse 14. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world, holding firm to the word of life. Another thing to remember about stars as we think about the stars in the sky is that stars get brighter. They shine brighter the darker it is. I don't know if you've ever experienced that here in Louisville. I can go out to my backyard. I live in the city and I can see like one or two stars. But just a few weeks ago, I went out to a cabin where there are no lights. 
And I looked up into the stars and I was overwhelmed. I know they're there. I've seen the stars before, but I had forgotten thousands upon hundreds of thousands of stars just littering the sky, shining up the darkness. And that's what we're called to be. We are shot. We are stars that light up the sky. And the darker the world is, the darker the place is, the darker the situation is, we shine brighter. And make no mistake, we live in a dark world. Paul here uses strong language to communicate the brokenness and depravity of the world that they lived in. He calls it a crooked and perverted generation. Crooked and perverted, really? Is it necessary to call the world crooked and perverted? And I would say, yes. Yes, it is. When we pull back the veil that masks the depth of the sin in our culture, what we see is not just disturbing, but it's horrific. And if we're honest with ourselves, it, it should make us sick. It should shake us to our core. Think about how crooked and perverted our world is behind closed doors. The systems of racial oppression and inequality are thriving, not just in our country, but around the world. My job is as an international missions pastor. And when I travel, I see the themes of racial injustice everywhere I go. It is a human problem. Men and women and children are trafficked into slave labor and into the sex industry every day. The victims are held against their will for prostitution, for forced labor, for organ removal, and for the things I dare not speak of on this video. Advocates estimate that there are more than 20 million people in this modern day slavery. There are dictators and rulers alive today that are committing genocide. Genocide is the murder, the destruction, the wiping out of whole people groups. There are women and children abused and beaten behind closed doors in our city. It's not just the city, it's the suburbs. It's the country and it's everywhere in between. Kentucky has the highest rate of child sexual abuse in the country. What do we do with that? How do we sit in that brokenness? I could go on. There's so much more disturbing things behind the veil of the depravity of our world, but I must stop. And none of us want to hear these things, right? But whether we avoid them or not, they are still happening. They are realities of our world. Children are still trafficked. Women are abused. Babies are murdered. Minorities are oppressed. What can we do in such a dark world as Christians? What can we do in a place that's so perverted by sin? Wouldn't it just be easier to simply pretend it didn't happen? That it doesn't exist? We cannot and we must not pretend that our world is not on fire because we as Christians are called to stand up and to shine bright into the darkness. We are to shout from the mountaintops that Jesus is King. And we must not and we cannot close our eyes to the brokenness of our world. And as Paul teaches this truth of the depravity and the perversion of our world, he calls us to be lights in the dark world. He gives a specific example. And it may seem anticlimactic from what we just talked about, but here's what he says. 
do everything without grumbling and arguing. Now, remember the context Paul's writing in. He's talking to the church of Philippi, which we'll see in chapter four. They're experiencing some disunity. Uh, and it's not just an argument between two people, which it is that, but it, Paul is feeling like it's threatening the livelihood and the vitality of the church. So what Paul does is he points back to the call to live in unity, live in unity with one another. He is calling the Philippians to live a life without arguing and bickering and a life without complaining about their circumstances. Now, I'm about to step on some toes here because what Paul doesn't realize, but he does, is how easy it is to complain. And we as Christians, we buy into this. Sadly, you and I, we find ourselves whining and complaining complaining because instead of realizing what we do have, we're longing for what we don't have. The, the great gifts that God has given us and our propensity to whine and complain, it reminds me of the Israelites, right? They're in slavery, they're under oppression. God sends Moses and Aaron and redeems them. And they see the waters part. They're get, given manna, God's provision. And what happens to the Israelites is as soon as the situation goes sideways, they forget God's provision in the past and they forget God's promises for the future. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing. Our tendency is to, to look for what we don't have instead of to celebrate and to be thankful for what we do have. We, wanna, we want what we can't grasp instead of what God has given to us. And the same is true for us. We forget about God's work in the past and we fixate on what we can't have. And I just want you to ask yourself a question. What in your life are you complaining about to God and to others? Maybe it's your job. Maybe you have a job, but it's not a job you really want. It's not what you want to do forever. Maybe you bounce from job to job because you're like trying to fill this void and you're always complaining because maybe it's someone else's fault. But the reality is God's giving you a provision for your family and for yourself. What it would be to look like to be thankful with God, what God has given you, to be content with the job you have. Or maybe it's your singleness. You long to be married, but it's just not happening. You see, maybe you've tried to make it happen or maybe you haven't, you haven't tried and you're trusting in the Lord and there's nothing there and you run to complaining and it is difficult and it is hard. But what does it look like to push into gratitude and to trust the Father in the midst of that? Or maybe you have a family and maybe you have kids and these things you've always longed for. And when you get them, you're like, oh no, this is not what I want. Because what marriage does is it reveals the sinfulness of your heart. That's like step one. And step two is when you have kids, it like elevates the sinfulness of your heart. And you start complaining about the good gifts of family and kids. You find ways to complain. Why won't they listen? Don't they respect me? Why don't they obey? If they could just stop screaming for one second. And I get it. It's hard. It's hard to be a family man. It's, it's hard to, to be a good mother or a father. But what does it look like to, in the midst of chaos, to set our eyes on Jesus in gratitude and thankfulness? Or maybe it's even in your walk with God. You try and you fail and you try and you fail and you feel distant from the Lord and your walk is dry and your tendency, your propensity is to move to complaining. Instead of complaining, why don't we see the good gifts God has given to us and be thankful? It doesn't mean we can't ask God for more, the longings of our heart. God wants to hear those things, but our, there is a call to be contented with what God has given in plenty and in want. What a better picture of Paul sitting in prison, 
writing a letter in want. The Philippians who are experiencing disunity and suffering, suffering that is coming and seeking to be content. But growing in our faith is more than just not arguing and complaining. As we mentioned before, sanctification is the process of being shaped, formed into the image of Jesus. To look and act like him more every day. This means that we live in unity while we're dying to our own desires. It means that we seek to elevate the needs of our others as um, we don't elevate the needs of our own. We're thinking of others as more than we think of ourselves. It means that we fight the urge to complain, the urge to gossip, the urge to attack others, and instead we stop and we seek to be reconciled with our brother and our sister. This whole section of Philippians is urging us to live our lives worthy of the gospel, united together the people of God to be lights in a dark world. And we do this, as the scriptures say, as we hold firm to the word of faith. Now, the word of life. The word of life here is in verse 16 is the gospel. It's the gospel we have been given. The truth that Jesus lived and he died and he rose again to give us life. But when we look at this phrase, it's important to know what Paul is saying and what he's not saying. Paul is not saying that we should hold firm to the gospel. We pull it tight. We don't let anybody see it. We cover it up and we're ashamed of it. We're keeping it for ourselves. That's not what we're called to experience in the gospel. He is saying more than just hold on to the gospel, which is important. We do need to like hold on to cherish, to grow in the gospel. That's part of being a Christian. But the language here is implying that we should hold out the gospel. Remember, you go back, shine like lights uh, in a dark sky. We are holding out the gospel as a beacon of light for the world to see. Literally, we're, we're holding it out so that others can experience it, to touch it, to taste it, to feel it, for the gospel to be their own. You see, when we experience the life-shaping, the eternity-altering power of the gospel— We can't contain its power. It's impossible. We can't simply hold on to it. We must give it out to others. We must live a life of holiness that pleases God. And we must use our words to make that light understood. What are people seeing? What is that they're seeing a difference in your life? What is that? So we put words to the actions that they're seeing. We both demonstrate and we declare the gospel. All week I've said in this text, just trying to, Wrestle with it in my own heart. Lord, what are you telling me? What do you want me to tell the church of Sojourn? And I keep coming back to this story from Missions History. I love Missions History. And there's this vivid example of what can happen when a community of faith overcomes disunity, embraces humility, and experiences the living God. So there's a small group of Christians that came out of the Reformation, early 1700s, and they experienced extreme persecution. This group is called the Moravians. This picture here is a, a place called Hernhut. This is uh, kind of where the Moravians solidified. They fled from modern-day uh, Czech Republic. They were persecuted by both Protestants and Catholics. And they fled into Germany. And there was this wealthy man named Count Zinzendorf. And he uh, took in these refugees, these religious refugees, and he gave them a place to live. This is the place that he gave them to live on his estate. And soon, um, Zinzendorf began leading this, this fledgling church. And he soon realized that the Moravians had a major problem. And their major problem was conflict and disunity within the group. They were fighting about theological things that were secondary issues. 
It's ironic, just let me stop for a second. It's ironic because the original name of the, the Moravians translated, uh, translates unity of the brethren, right? That's, that's funny. Because they weren't unified. They were at each other's throats. Anyway, what Zinzendorf knew is that for this small group of believers, these refugees fleeing persecution to survive, they needed to be reconciled to one another. So he did. He called them to, to lay down their arms and to, to embrace one another, to seek reconciliation. Zinzendorf helped them to end their dispute and he led them instead. He called them to set their eyes on Jesus and to focus on sanctification. Let's focus on growing to be like Jesus and to worship him. And this new unity and the focus on growing in Jesus led to an outpouring of the spirit in the group. This is, there's many books written about the Moravians. Revival broke out. They, they began to worship and to praise Jesus. This once divided group was, was now unified. What were they unified around? They were unified around the person and the work of Jesus. And this revival affected every aspect of their life. And it pushed them out to a dark world. They began praying together hourly. They were taking turns in the, to pray for their community, for the church, and for the nations. And they prayed for a hundred years. Now, not like a meeting once a week for a hundred years. They prayed for a hundred years without ceasing this group. They began uh, living more sacrificially for one another, giving things that others within the community might need. And through this unity and revival came one of the greatest mission movements in all of history. This church of 300 people sent more international missionaries in 20 years than the whole Protestant church had sent in the previous 200 years. By the time Zinzendorf died, this small group had sent 226 missionaries to some of the darkest places on earth. There are stories about men and women and groups like community groups going together. They would give up all all they had, their homes and their families and their friends so that others could know about Jesus. There are stories told of some of them having a vision for the marginalized and the poor, those in slavery. So they even sold themselves into slavery so they could work side by side, chained side by side to people who were marginalized and share the gospel and disciple them. Now I share this story because I want us to see what the unity of the church along with the power of the gospel, can do in Christians' lives. They can literally change the world. The Moravians are an amazing example of a church used to shine like stars in a dark world. Why not us? Sojourn, why not us? Why can't we fall on our face, set down our petty differences, be united around the person and the work of Jesus, and give our lives away? Why not us? What keeps us from experiencing the outpouring of the Spirit? What keeps us from being a beacon of light in our city and the nations? Sojourn, let us be united around the gospel, growing together to be uh, shaped into the image of Jesus and illuminating our city. May it be so. And I want to drive you to one application from this sermon. As, As I wrap up, one application. Here it is. Shine like stars. Shine like stars. I want you to meditate on that truth this week. I want you to teach it to your kids. I want you to think about what does it mean to shine like stars in the world God has placed you in. Remember, Paul is urging us to work out or to cultivate our salvation. And as we cultivate the salvation, the salvation we are giving, we will shine like stars. I have two questions for you 
I want you to think about this week. Number one, are you cultivating the faith you've been given? Are you cultivating the faith that you've been given? Are you proactively working to grow in maturity as a Christian? Now, remember, spiritual growth is not passive. It is active. It calls us to to put our hand to the plow and to, to be in God's word and to cultivate a life of prayer and to be an active part of a local community of believers and so on. There's so many tools of growing in your faith. But remember, it's not just self-effort. It is the Spirit of God empowering you and giving you the desire to do so. So I want you to think of one practical step that you can take to grow in your faith this week. Second question. Are you shining like a star in your world? Are you shining like a star in your world? Does your life demonstrate a life changed by Jesus? And are you telling others about him? Because here's the deal. The darker our world gets, when the veneer of Christendom is ripped off the walls of our culture and our country, do you shine like a star? Is your life different? Because we as Christians are called to be different and unique. Do not be afraid to stand out. Let your light shine in a dark world and testify to why your light is so bright. Step neck deep into the darkness of our world with the gospel. Make the gospel known with our lives. And God has given us a, a sign of his gift of salvation that we can grow in, that we can celebrate. And that sign is communion. And every week we gather, we're able to, to take the bread and take the, the wine and remember what Christ has done for us. And the night Jesus was betrayed, he broke the bread and he took the wine. And he said, this is my body and this is my blood shed for you. And church, as we won't have a chance to do this this, uh, this morning. But next week, if you're able to gather with us, we will take this together. And as we, we take this and we set our eyes on the elements and as we think about what Jesus has done for us, this is what fuels a life of sanctification. Jesus' death for us on the cross. So as we pray, if you are a believer, the body and the blood of Jesus empower you to be a light. And if you are not a Christian, it's your chance. Allow Jesus to change you from the inside out so that you can shine in a dark world. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.